This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentercom slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, me, me who's dying. I've had enough of all this. It feels like nothing gets to me anymore. It's like I'm dead inside. I tried, I really tried. But I just can't. It keeps feeling empty, whatever I do, and pointless. And This is Laura. She lives in Belgium, and after years of mental suffering, her request for euthanasia has been granted. Laura is just 24 years old. The fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. Right. Denying them another option. This leaves me no choice. Perfect goodbye. Of the eugenic impulse. This evaluation of We lives. just don't talk about it. Against the invasion of death. We play death. the game. I felt judged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control the me. The police are obliged to charge me. Away. What the hell can you do? Oh, murder, manslaughter. Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. My name is Andrew Denton and you're listening to Better Off Dead. When I set out to learn about a sister dying, I told myself that I wouldn't look away from any of it, no matter how hard. This determination was shaken when I learnt of Laura. Immediately, alarm bells went off. My gut reaction was, a 24-year-old who is not terminally ill? How can they be so sure that they can't help her? Surely there's a point at which a society goes, no, you have too much life ahead of you for us to help you die. If you ask me where is the line where it got uncomfortable, this was it. To me, this seemed unacceptable, dangerous. The days that followed, talking with some of Belgium's leading psychiatrists and physicians, were amongst the most intense I've ever experienced. Emotionally, I couldn't shake the thought, this doesn't seem right, but intellectually I wondered, is there more here than I know? As I was grappling with it, I rang my wife in Australia. I told her about the young woman and what I had been learning about why doctors here thought it allowable she'd be granted the right to euthanasia. To my dismay, she responded fiercely. I support a sister dying, she said, but this is not right. You've drunk the Kool-Aid on this, Andrew. Sitting in my hotel room in Brussels late at night, I wondered if she was right. Was my belief in a sister dying blinding me to something that was fundamentally wrong? Maybe this really was the slippery slope. To be honest, I toyed with not including this story in the podcast. It's so fraught with ambiguity and nuance that I feared it could easily be misunderstood and derail everything else I've been arguing. But two things persuaded me to keep it in. First, that it was the people who were treating this young woman who had alerted me to her case. They wanted me to look at it, to try and understand. I realised that if I was going to be honest about the case for a sister dying, then I had to give everyone the chance to hear what I'd heard no matter how confronting. And second, a meeting I had two hours drive from Brussels with a man whose sadness was so intense it was almost visible. The story he told me would change my understanding of the world. 
before we get to that story and the case of Laura, a question. What if it turns out that the offer of euthanasia actually saves lives? My childhood was um, actually a lovely childhood. Living in Odenaardum, lots of green, lots of friends, um, being playful, doing naughty things, um, building camps, um, actually outdoors, a lot of things outdoors, lots of sports, um, good people around you. Marjorie van Gonspeeker's early years sound idyllic. As she grew up, she took on the life of an adventurer. I'm a pilot as well, do scuba diving, um, now I become a cook. So it's all, it's interest and it never stops. It's constant curiosity. There are things you do, actually what you can do by yourself. You don't need anyone else. Doing things by herself was important to Marjorie because from an early age, she'd struggled to connect. By her mid-30s, Marjorie's isolation from other humans had deepened to an alarming degree. I had no communication, I think for six years. So I lived completely by myself, no communication. So even the way you think, speak, isn't right anymore, comparing with your age. Can you describe to me why you felt you had to spend those six years within yourself? I think it was the communication with other people didn't work, because each time, like, you... You bump into walls and you, and then, then it's like, okay, you and very sad by yourself. And if you do it for so long, you have no realization anymore what you're really doing. So you hide, really. You get locked in your own sense of yourself. Yes. How about your family? Were you able to talk with them? I had no communication with them. You couldn't talk to them or you felt they couldn't talk to you? I think it's both ways. It goes both ways. I couldn't talk to them. And actually, they run away. Run away. Yeah, that's a very good way of defense. So they could see the change in you and they didn't know how to approach that. Yeah. That's it. Marjorie couldn't make herself understood to others and she couldn't understand why they shunned her in turn. To help her break out of the cage in which she was trapped, she sought psychiatric help. I was treated by a doctor between 34 and 40 years old. Evolution was just like going downhill. And I said like, well, for six years, you as a professional, within your trade as a doctor, you cannot help me any further. So if you did, as a professional, everything you could, then we both know there is no hope and I will not accept to live. Did you have anyone you were close to in your life? Not in those six years. Before then, yes. Yeah. So by the end of that six years, you had, in some ways, made yourself a ghost. Yeah. I'm pretty good at that. Marjorie was alive but hardly living, an invisible being alienated from her friends, family and community. If this was life, she'd had enough. I just went for, OK, we do this. Euthanasia is over and done because if you are in the negative spiral and you don't see anything clearly, it's, it, it's painful. It's like my body hurt, like, without any reason, because I wasn't ill. It was just ligaments, muscles, um, even your skin, like, everything was, ow, just, just mentally completely 
worn out, a, a wreck, yeah, a wreck. So you don't want to live like that. Do you remember the moment where you went from being in pain to thinking, I want to end this? Yes, I recall then. And it was like, whew, oof, I have the address, I will drive there, ask euthanasia and it will be all fine, it's over. What happened next? So I went to Ultim in Brussels. Yes, location where you can ask for euthanasia. Ultim is a specialised medical unit that deals with difficult end-of-life requests. When you applied for euthanasia, were you told, yes, this is possible, but first you have to do these things? There was not a clear yes or no. It was just more an introduction the first time. List. I didn't speak much then. I said, like, because I remember it was uh, Dr. Tinpon asked me certain things, and I go, like, here, it's all written down here. Here, mm-hmm. just do read then. I said, but I do want to have a conversation with you. But if you don't speak for six years, the way you talk is also, it doesn't sound good. Hmm. I mean, you're slower in your talking, you have to think more. Um, also, your structure in what you say is chopped. Your own language has become a foreign language. It was, yeah. All team psychiatrists dug deep into her life and psyche. The result was not the free pass to death Marjorie had been hoping for. She gave me a card with three points. One was um, research um, Asperger syndrome. Two was a psychologist to visit, kind of to speak about Asperger, to get more insights of it. And then three was the next appointment at Ultim in Brussels. I was really not pleased with that because it was like, oh no, there we go again, another title. From psychose to Asperger. And I looked it up. Asperger, okay, internet, library, some books. And it was funny. I really had so much fun reading it because it was, it was me. Under the guidance of all team, Marjorie was sent to group therapy to better understand her diagnosis of Asperger's. And most of them are Asperger. I mean, you recognise it like that. But I didn't go right from the start when I knew. It took six months to find out. Because if you read it, it's funny. But what does that mean? Marjorie learned new skills to help her navigate the world. What do I have to avoid and not do? It's also very important. That's what I learned the last year now. What do not to do. So there are steps you have to do by yourself and it worked. So you came to Ulting, you were given Asperger's research, you, you saw yourself there, you spent six months working on things that were suggested to you. Were you still interested in pursuing euthanasia? No. It's that time I went to the group and I see all those other people and I was thinking, I am not alone. That's that's how it went and it works out really good. If you hadn't applied for euthanasia, which led you to the diagnosis of Asperger's and the chance to learn to be in control, what do you think might have happened? What do you think you might have done? I probably committed suicide. 
Under Belgian law, permission for euthanasia can only be granted if the patient is in a medically futile condition of constant and incurable physical or mental suffering that cannot be alleviated. In the case of psychiatric suffering, three doctors, one a psychiatrist, must independently come to the same view that the case is so intractable that the request for euthanasia can be granted. And this only after all possible treatment options are canvassed. There is another important safeguard too. The patient has to be mentally competent to make a request. But how does that work when someone has severe psychiatric illness? If we are not sure that they realise very well what they are asking for, then we are very, very careful, of course. Lever Timpon, 63, is a psychiatrist who works at all team. And sometimes, for example, with uh, patients who are psychotic, almost psychotic, we will not help by euthanasia. We have to be sure that they know exactly the consequences of euthanasia act, of the consequences of their question. It was Lever who saw Marjorie and who directed her towards a diagnosis of Asperger's. It's because the autism, they have other problems. They are depressed, they have uh, no social context, they are isolated, uh, financial problems. And for autism, there's no a solution, a real solution. It's clear that most of them are very intelligent. So they know that there is not much perspective. They don't want the quality of life they have. So after years and years looking for solutions uh, for the depression, being in hospital, a lot of uh, medication, electroshocks, and so on, they want to die. They want to stop their looking for solution there. Lever has worked with all teams since it was established in 2011 to deal with the most complex euthanasia requests. What are the kind of psychiatric illnesses that people come here with? All kinds of illnesses, but I did uh, um, research from 100 uh, patients. All of them are chronic, a long history of illness, many treatments, most of them have also problems social, economic. So there's a chronic suffering. Many of them are less or more therapy resistant. That's the most important problem. Many of the patients Lever sees have multiple problems that collectively make their suffering so unbearable that they request euthanasia. Even so... Most of the people don't want to die. They want to live but they don't want the life they have. They are alive, but they don't have a life. And they want to change it, most of them. And so some of them are very grateful afterwards eh, that they, they find another way. Many, it seems, do find another way. More than 50% of the people who are asking for euthanasia are finding other ways. And sometimes we can help to open ways because... They can speak about their wish to die. It's totally different with suicide, um, with suicide, because with suicide thoughts, they are sitting in a corner alone. They don't want to speak about it. With the euthanasia question, it's totally different. It's an opportunity to speak with them and to look together if we can find better solutions. And often we can. 
Those who argue the slippery slope about Belgium point particularly to the rising numbers of psychiatric euthanasia cases, from zero when the law first came in in 2002 to a reported 58 cases in 2011, a number that in 2013 increased to 92. What those statistics don't show is the number of people for whom the process of applying for euthanasia helped them find another path. People like Marjorie. In my case, it was a gift. It's priceless what happened there. Just realising, yeah, what your condition is. And it's not just, the right diagnosis is fantastic. But then you have something to work on. Marjorie's story gave me pause for thought but still I was confronted by the idea of 24-year-old Laura being legally granted the right to die. Even more when I discovered a 2015 research paper Lever had published in the British Medical Journal. You say in the report here that the concept of unbearable suffering has not yet been defined adequately and that views on this concept are in a state of flux. Can you give me a sense of what the different views are within your profession about unbearable suffering? Well, I think that uh, one of the important questions is, is it something that we can uh, make more objective? How do you mean by objective? Yeah, it's not... Something you can judge from the outside. Yes, yes. And I believe we cannot. We cannot. So it's very subjective. It's only the person himself who can decide if the quality of life is acceptable or not. But we are doing now a new research just to describe unbearable suffering, how it looks like the suffering, the unbearable suffering. For example, almost all of them uh, will tell you that it's chronic or almost all of them will tell us that the consequences are very, very bad, Uh, social, economic, psychological So it's not only the illness, but the consequences of the illness who make the quality of life. You say in this report, in your conclusion, that unfortunately there are no guidelines for the management of euthanasia requests on the grounds of mental suffering in Belgium. And taking into account the ongoing fierce ethical debates, you say it is essential to develop such guidelines and translate them into clear, detailed protocols that can be applied. What are your thoughts on the kind of guidelines that are needed? First of all, if we offer a new therapy, we must know that it can be, or there is a a big chance, that it is successful. Yeah? Because in psychiatry you can always find something else to do. But we have to know that it can be really successful for a longer period, not for one or two days, but for a longer period. So that's the first condition. The second is that uh, it must be acceptable for the patients. The patient must have enough energy left to go that way for the new treatment and in a time that is acceptable for the patient. I give you an example. I'm thinking about a patient, young, about 30 years, was 10 years in the same hospital for anorexia. The hospital was not specialized in it, not at all. So after 10 years hospital, you can say, and we did it. eh? 
There are hospitals who are better, uh, who are more specialized in your problem. So please try it. Try it, but not for one month. It takes, again, a year, two years, three years. We now it's a very severe problem. So it depends on the patient if there is uh, energy left to, after all those years, try another way for again uh, many years. Because, as you said, there's not an agreement about what unbearable suffering is and there's not clear guidelines about how to act. Well, you say it's not clear. I think it is clear. Unbearable is what the patient can't bear anymore. Okay. Yeah, so that's clear. But how that suffering looks like, that there is much more work to do to describe it. Because this is such a critical, a crucial thing, life and death, that without clear guidelines, uh, it feels to me there is a danger there for you and for uh, vulnerable patients. Yes. Let us say it in another way. Of course, we are working very hard on the guidelines and we are developing them, but till now, they are not written down as guidelines. Yeah? We are all working in a, a team, a team with psychologists, oncologists, psychiatrists, yes. and so on. So we are all together uh, working on that guidelines, but not uh, at that moment, we don't have them written down. Despite Lever's explanation about developing written protocols to guide physicians in these cases, I remained uneasy. How can they know that a patient's psychiatric suffering is unbearable if they don't know what that looks like? We wanted to learn what are the factors that can convince us that the physical or mental uh, suffering of the patient is indeed unbearable. Luke Prout, a retired oncologist, has studied unbearable suffering in both cancer and psychiatric patients. He's one of the many professionals at all team responding to requests for psychiatric euthanasia. There are non-psychiatric physicians like me. They are psychiatrists in that team. They are psychologists, they are lawyers, they are nurses, they are uh, spiritual caregivers, etc., etc. It's a team of 12 to 14 people. We discuss all difficult cases again and again and again. Uh, and it can take months, even more than a year, before we come to a final conclusion. Uh, certainly in that kind of patient, in a psychiatric patient. Luke has been part of the team managing Laura's case for the last 14 months. There is obviously some, uh, quite a lot of publicity and conversation about this young girl who's going by the name of Laura, who is 24. That, to the eyes of somebody outside of this country, seems like a very shocking thing, that a 24-year-old may wish to die, and that that would be allowable mm. uh, according to the law. Mm -hmm. Can you explain something of this case and, and how that conclusion has been reached? It is an example of the terrible mental suffering that even young people can have. And certainly when it started when they were very young, even that young person is in treatment for more than 15 years, even that young person. And she has had all kinds of treatments. And their physicians tell us 
Tatsius resistant to treatments. And today, after many discussions, the clarification is favorable. But if she will come to euthanasia, I don't know. By clarification, Luke means the assessment of her case, one that led to her request for euthanasia being granted. Uh, before taking this decision, it took us a whole long process. It is not only about the medical history of the patient, it is also about his life history. Eh? And certainly, for example, in psychiatric patients, if you talk to them, you learn that they are treated for many years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, that they have all kinds of treatments, not only medication, but also all kinds of psychotherapy. They uh, recovered, they relapsed, they start again a treatment, they recovered again, they relapsed again, but we see that the time between the recovery and uh, relapse shortens. And at at a certain moment, there is no recovery anymore. And they are in a continuous state of mental distress, mental suffering. And that's the moment that the death wish is born. And uh, I am an oncologist in my former life before I retired. And what I see... The difference between a cancer patient and a psychiatric patient is not very great. You see, in a a cancer patient, he recovered, relapsed. We give him a second line of chemotherapy. He relapsed again. We give him a third uh, uh, line of chemotherapy, knowing that uh, there's a chance of recovering smaller and smaller. And at a certain moment, we have nothing anymore. And we accept that that terminal ill patient may request euthanasia. The difference between that cancer patient and the psychiatric patient is the outside. In the cancer patient who is terminally ill, you see the patient. He is much thinner. He has pain. But the difference is the psychiatric patient has also pain inside. On the outside, it's a normal person. And that's the difficulty. But their pain is sometimes worse than uh, the pain of cancer patients. That's very difficult to, to understand and to say that to other people. A key to recovery, experience shows, is reconciliation. We learned that If we can reconciliate the patient with her family, with her friends, with her life, that kind of rehabilitation is very important. They need a whole network around them because in their mental suffering, they uh, lose their social network. And that's one of the reasons why their mental suffering is so terrible. But it's a fine line. For vulnerable people like Laura, the possibility of coercion has to be considered. We have to be very careful because it could be, it could be an external pressure on her in the direction of euthanasia. Uh, And that we will avoid. And we have discusses with her that she has much more to 
think about her herself let the outside world outside stay under treatment that's very important for us uh, and uh, try to find some courage and come to a final decision tomorrow next year in 10 years i don't know is she comfortable with her decision right now that that's what she wants uh i don't know it is up to the patient to decide whether or not they will have their euthanasia. Eh? And what we see now is that the whole attention is given to her, gives her new courage. And I'm very happy for that because perhaps she will wait. She will put her euthanasia on hold. From that point of view, I am happy that the the world is looking to that case. She told me, um, I'm happy because people now will understand a little bit what mental suffering is. And uh, we work together with her psychiatrist and yeah, she is still in treatment. think that we have still a chance to keep her ongoing. Regardless of what a law says, should a society be letting a 24-year-old person go who doesn't have a a life-threatening illness, a terminal illness? But it is a life-threatening disease. That's what the outside world don't understand. Psychiatric disorders are life-threatening diseases. That's what they call a taboo, still a taboo. And we tried to, first of all, uh, to other physicians when we were speaking, uh, with them to break open that taboo. I think one of the things that uh, people struggle with, probably I struggle with, is that I accept that she has great pain in her 24 years of life. I do not doubt that. But what I struggle with is the thought of the life story that she may never have of the life ahead with children, lovers, life changes. And so that is a hard thing to reconcile to. Yeah, but that's your opinion. I mean, that's an opinion of a not psychiatric patient. For her, her future is only mental suffering. Mental suffering. No possibilities of a definite cure. Also important. They know that. They don't think about children alive with a husband and children. Uh, Some of our patients have been married, but it was a disaster. Some have children, but it was a disaster for the children. On one level, I understood what Luke was saying. But on another, as a parent, I struggled with the thought of my child choosing euthanasia when they had a non-terminal illness. I asked Lever if she found it hard to reconcile that thought too. Of course, of course, I also have children. It must be terrible. But I saw parents more than than, than one that they are saying losing your child is terrible. But looking at your child in pain, year after year, it's, if possible, more painful. 
On a little laneway in the country, a couple of hours out of Brussels, lives a man who carries a sadness so palpable, it's as if you can reach out and touch it. Pierre Paul Vinker has a special insight into what is meant by unbearable and untreatable psychological suffering. His daughter, Edith, committed suicide at the age of 36 after 18 years of just such suffering, on a scale that is frankly very difficult to imagine. As we moved away from the buzz of the garden bees and into Pierre's lounge room, we were enveloped by a profound and gut-wrenching silence. The silent hell of a father's world, beginning when his daughter was just 17 and became anorexic. My daughter didn't eat anymore and she lost her kilos. From a, a, a nice-looking young girl, she was like a skeleton. Uh, and she didn't realize she was a skeleton. During some years, my wife and me, we tried to help her, her in anorexia, but we didn't realize that she need, needed help for something much worse than anorexia. Was she able to explain to you or even to herself why she didn't feel good? No, and that made her anxious because she told us regularly she felt as somebody else inside of her was deciding. She knew that a lot of things of self-mutilation, she was inflicted herself, she knew that it was bad, but she could not resist to the temptation of doing it. As she grew older, Edith's drive to self-destruction became overwhelming. She first tried to suicide herself by cutting in her uh, hands. She was 18 years old. Uh, at this time, she sometimes told us that uh, it was really difficult to stay alive because she didn't find a place in our life. Really quickly, she told to psychologists or psychiatrists that she wanted to die. She asked me to help her die. It's really difficult to hear your own daughter asking you something like this. And she was then 18, 19 years old. I could think of no harder thing than to be asked by your child to help them to die. What do you say in a situation like that? Well, uh, it's really difficult because uh, as a father, you, you think you have to assist your children in a lot of difficult situations. Uh, I was educated in uh, Christianity and I knew about uh, Abraham, but uh, I was not ready to do what Abraham was asked to do with his son. I was not ready to help my daughter to die. In desperation, Pierre, Paul and Edith went to specialist after specialist. Yes, and a lot of uh, psychiatrists and psychologists we met tried to catalogue her in somewhere in a non-psychological or mental illness. But no one succeeded in this exercise. And then 
when she heard about a law in Belgium who allowed euthanasia in some specific cases, she read it and she told us, I am eligible for euthanasia in Belgium. But most of the medical doctors who followed her didn't follow her in her question. So did you genuinely explore with doctors whether or not Edit could undertake euthanasia? I made a big mistake because maybe I thought Edith was too ill to really understand what was written in the law. I had a stupid behavior because I was full confident in the medical daughter, doctors I met. Maybe I had to study further the Belgian law about euthanasia. So you thought it, it didn't apply to edit? It could apply completely to edits, but in a lot of cases, it's difficult for some medical doctors to allow that they can't help the patient anymore. And uh, then they say it's not allowed, but uh, legally, edit was right. How many doctors did, did you and did edit talk to about euthanasia? Oof. I did uh, something around the 20, and me maybe 15. And they all said, no, this no, is not right for they her. They all said, no, it's not lawful. So between you, you saw maybe 30 doctors. As this went on and on, did this make edit more desperate? Desperate in the sense that she spoke lesser and lesser about euthanasia. And maybe as parents, we interpreted this as she was going better. But uh, I think she didn't want to speak about euthanasia anymore because she was planning a suicide and trying to euthanize herself. How many years between her suicide attempt when she was 18 and when she did kill herself, how many years took place? 18. 18 years of heavy psychic sufferings, suicide attempts a lot, auto-mutilation with uh, razor blades, with fire, with cuttings everywhere on her body. Uh, it's difficult to understand uh, how it's possible. Uh, she told me then that when she was cutting in her flesh, it helped her mm, feeling better because her psychic suffering was that heavy that in cutting or burning her own flesh was giving her the impression she was healing from her psychic suffering. It's extraordinary what the human brain can do. You said she made more than one suicide attempt, is that right? Yes, more than one, and uh, she was really angry because it was, she didn't succeed. The last 
weeks before she succeeded uh, in suicide herself, we phoned a lot to the doctors who were following her because she was in a psychiatric institution. We told them she is not going well and she is preparing something. And she cut her trough in the psychiatric institution when where she was. Had there been a genuine conversation about euthanasia with yourselves, with the doctors, what difference do you think that might have made? The difference, I only understood it afterwards. We are convinced that Edith uh, asked a legal question and that maybe it had been important to discuss with her about euthanasia versus suicide instead of trying to avoid this discussion. It's really important because when you speak with psychical suffering people about their question for euthanasia, more than 50% of them choose to stay alive. They, they, they find a kind of, uh, of medication to be listened at, to, that their suffering is recognized. And then maybe uh, death is not a problem anymore because they could receive help to die. And in the case of Edith, more than 10 years medication, uh, psychiatric institutions uh, didn't help her. Uh, most of the daughters, doctors knew she was incurable, that the medicine couldn't help her anymore. So maybe it's time now to start uh, avoiding this kind of discussion and to speak clearly with some patients about their suicide or their euthanasia. Uh, as a father, it's really difficult to read a police report describing what happened to your daughter when she suicided herself. It's horrible. When I discuss with parents of people or who are euthanized, it seems so peaceful. It's difficult to use these words. It's beautiful because they, they can say goodbye to each other. For all your deep love for your daughter and, and care for her, is there a sense that you failed her even though you didn't know that you were failing her? Yes. Uh, my feeling is that uh, I failed somewhere because I cultivated my hope without uh, understanding her despair. I thought we can solve everything in life with love or with parental care. But it's not true. There is a limit even to love and even to parental care. Have you been able to forgive yourself? E not every time. 
I sometimes still have doubts, but those doubts are especially the way I communicated to my daughter. Maybe her sufferings were that much. I didn't always spoke to her as if she was a healthy young woman. And she was indeed a healthy young woman with a illness. Her brains functioned fantastically good. She knew what was happening. She realized that with all those medicine, she was only a shadow of the beautiful, clever young woman she used to be. She realized that she was already dead. And whenever she asked for help for euthanasia, the answer of the doctors was to condemn her to stay alive. Do you understand why people struggle with the idea of euthanasia for people of a young age? Yes, I understand it. But the only advice I can give to those people who are hesitating, and I understand, it's really difficult. They should discuss directly with people in psychological sufferings. Not with the doctors, not with the parents of those people, but with the people in psychic sufferings. In Belgium, every day, six suicides a day for psychical sufferings. And if you listen correctly to what those people are experiencing, and if you communicate correctly about their dreams of suicide or euthanasia, maybe you can save more than 50% of them. In a way no doctor ever could, Pierre Paul had described for me the true shape of the monster they were dealing with. Not depression or psychosis as I understood them, but something far deeper, darker and unyielding. Laura may only have been 24, but she too had been in treatment for years for extreme depression and complicated psychiatric disorders, since the age of 12 in fact. This had manifested itself in suicide attempts and other consistent acts of self-harm. A few months after leaving Belgium, I found an interview with her online conducted by a documentary maker working for The Economist magazine. The scars on her arms clearly visible, this is how she described her life. I feel like there's a monster behind my ribcage constantly trying to get out. Cutting makes you think I can cut it down, and banging your head against the wall makes you think I can beat it, but even the slamming and hitting won't stop it. That's the hardest, picking yourself up every time when you know five minutes later it'll be back and you have to do it all over again. That's what makes it so unbearable. So, Liva, when you, when you talk to Laura and she 
expresses, this life is not for me. What do you say? Well, every time I, I see her or I meet her or I hear her, we speak about life and maybe, maybe there are maybe possibilities to try something more. And that's, of course, my wish. I, really my wish that she even now can, can, can find a way out of her pain uh, by another treatment or... But on the same time, on the same time, I know she wants um, quietness or she wants to, the possibility to die in a, in a good way. And it's like balance, balancing between those two. I, I want to offer her a, a, another way to live. And on the same time, I want to offer her the, the peace uh, so that she can die on a, a soft and, and good way. Is there a concern that other young people who may be struggling with depression, they, they learn about a, a case like Laura's and they begin to think towards euthanasia as a solution to their problem rather than looking elsewhere? Yes, but I hope so because it's... It's like I said before, it's an opportunity to speak about their wish to die. Some of them already wished to die when they were very young. The first um, suicide attempts, yes. They were very small already, eh? very young already. I always say speaking about euthanasia is not dangerous. Not to speak about is dangerous because then they are preoccupied only by the suicide thoughts. If you can um, take them away, there's more space and time and energy and quietness to look at their life. It is a paradox I'd never considered before. How embracing the prospect of death can hold out instead the possibility of life. In her interview, Laura confirmed that the offer of a gentle death had saved her from a violent one. Without the option of euthanasia, years of suffering would have been compounded by a gruesome and lonely death. I would have killed myself. Even so, I wondered if Lever in any way doubted her course. I respect the care and the, the thought with which you go about your work, but it feels to me that you are also on a very high tightrope. Are you certain that psychiatric science knows enough to make a call on life and death? Well, it's not the science who decide. Uh, I think it's the quality of life and the energy left that decide if people can go on or not. They decide, not the science. Less than 2% of all deaths in Belgium are by euthanasia. In 2013, 97% of those were people with terminal or chronic physical diseases. 3% were 
were psychiatric. Within the Belgian medical community, there is ongoing debate about how best to deal with such cases. Some feel strongly that euthanasia is not appropriate. If you'd like to know more, head to the episode page at wheelercenter.com slash betteroffdead. For me, Laura's story was by far the most confronting thing I found on this journey. It took me a long time to understand the true nature of her unbearable suffering, and even longer to appreciate how the people at All Team were using euthanasia as a way of encouraging her to live. You may hear what I've heard and still think that their approach is wrong, but I came away with respect for what they're doing. To truly seek to understand the unbearable suffering of others, to walk beside them into the darkest places, searching for even a glimmer of light, and should their suffering prove beyond endurance or treatment, to promise a loving way out was to me a remarkable display of rational compassion. I couldn't help but wonder how many people in my country, suffering in this way and desperate for relief, might have been kept alive by the same approach. And Laura? She'd nominated last August to end her life by euthanasia, but as the day approached, opted not to. She's in treatment still and, in her own words, is holding her breath for the future. Next episode, I travel across the Atlantic to the last place I expected to be discussing assisted dying, the state of Oregon in the God-fearing US of A. Not only do they have a law to help people die, but it's the longest running one in the world. How did something so controversial become law in such a religiously conservative country? And 17 years later, why is there no controversy about it at all? 12 angels from the north 12 angels from the south 12 angels from the east 12 angels from the west for to carry me away Angels shooting from your brow Angels leaping from your mouth Angels lighting on your shoulders East and west, north and south Better Off Dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode. Angels leaping from your fingers Angels dancing on your breast Angels happy just to linger North and south, east and west Ooh.